Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And I'm really looking forward to listening to today's podcast myself. What we're about to uh, sit in on is a conversation between Symposia's Lex Pelger and an old friend of mine who also happens to be a hero of the worldwide psychedelic community, Casey Hardison. And if you go to uh, our podcast number 12 from this Salon 2 series, the one titled Psychedelic Stories from San Diego, you will hear how Casey fit into the psychedelic story I told about a Palenque conference back in February of 2000. And I ended that story with a mention of the first and probably the only large-scale investigation of humans using 2CT7, uh, the largest one at least that was documented, and it was documented by Casey. Now that report is available both on Arrowwood and on the MAPS website, which I'll link to in today's program notes. But from my perspective, Casey, uh, although he's still quite young from my perspective, but when it comes to life experience and being on the front lines of the war on people who don't use the government's approved pharmaceuticals, the so-called war on drugs, well, in that war, Casey has more experience than anyone else that I know who is still alive to tell about it. I may not have always agreed with some of Casey's tactics, but uh, <laughs> hell, I don't even still agree with some of the things that I've done myself. So uh, I take my hat off to the one and only Casey Hardison. Now let's hear from the man himself. Today's show is made possible through your crowdfunded support on Patreon. Unlike other crowdfunding sites, Patreon lets you chip in a few bucks a month to help us keep the lights on. Find out more at patreon.com slash symposia. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Here I am coming to you for the first time from Dr. Bruce Damer's DigiBar. I started in on processing Timothy Leary's archives for the Psychedelic History Project, and if you want to see any of those gems as I sort through these 16 boxes of clippings, I'm starting an Instagram feed at the Psychedelic History Project. We'll have Bruce Damer on the show soon to talk more about his work on the origin of life and asteroid capture and the many events he's doing this summer at festivals. But for now, I want to float an idea out to you in the audience. In the coming weeks, we're going to be changing up programming a little bit. On Mondays, you can still catch interviews with key figures in the world of psychedelic science and drug policy reform. But on Thursdays, I'm thinking to have a little bit more Voice of the People kind of events. Stories from one of the psychedelic story events around the countries, uh, shorter interviews with people about their drug experiences, more content out here from in California, a little bit more reportage from the road. And so if you have ideas for that or want to submit content, feel free to email me as always at lex at symposia.com. Another reason you can reach out for me is about events. If you're in Baltimore on Thursday, July 27th, by the way, Symposia will be hosting Addiction in the Drug War, a conversation with Neil Franklin at the Ubley Blake Center. And he, as you hopefully know, is the executive director of LEAP, 
which recently renamed themselves to Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And they are some of the most effective voices in the war on drugs because they are mostly a bunch of former cops. And also, following Neil, will feature drug war stories curated by David Fakunle and Deborah Pierce Fakunle, who are the founders and facilitators of Discover Me, Recover Me, which is an intervention program providing aid and social trauma recovery through storytelling. It sounds like it's going to be a great night. And to ensure this event is accessible to the public, this event is pay what you will. So there's one great event coming up. Please let me know about more and so we can get more people out to meet the others. Now for the main event, I suspect this week's guest, Casey Hardison, doesn't need much of an introduction. He is a legendary underground chemist who got busted in the United Kingdom with the largest psychedelics manufacturing lab that the Brits had ever seen. He used his trial as a testing ground for arguments for the right to cognitive liberty and the right to alter one's own consciousness. The defense didn't work in keeping him out of prison, but it did make him a hero to a generation of psychonauts. We're very happy to have him here on the show, broadcasting from the Shulgin Farm on the 4th of July. Here's a hero of cognitive liberty, Casey Hardison. Well, I just want to say thank you to Casey Hardison for coming here to Sasha Shulgin's farm on the 4th of July to talk about cognitive liberty and drugs. Welcome to Psychedelic Salon. Thank you so much. What a pleasure indeed to be here at Shulgin Farm on the 4th of July, where one of the progenitors of the idea of cognitive liberty was uh, practicing his own cognitive liberty for many, many, many years. So yeah. thank you very much. And it's nice that we don't have to be doing this one from prison. <laughs> it's really nice that we don't have to be doing it from prison. Though I was really hoping Lorenzo would. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that one, I, I was curious about the beginning, uh, about, about where you came from, and maybe if you were raised in any kind of uh, spiritual traditions. Curiosity. Uh, quite interestingly, I was raised in uh, a bit of a spiritual tradition. My, my grandmother was um, uh, obviously uh, come from an old school of world and old world, and she was uh, uh, Baptist in general, Christian in general. Uh, but my family, my father, my mother didn't have any subscription to that whatsoever. And when I, by the time I became linguistically of age to be aware of my world, my father was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and my mother was in, in Al-Anon. So I had the 12-step God, the God as you understand him or her or it or whatever, if there is one. And that is uh, how I... Uh, came to it. That's how I came to the idea of uh, the very, I mean, the, I came to the idea of having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So my, uh, the idea that one could have a spiritual awakening was uh, in my mind from a very early age. Wow. So the 12 steps got you started on this path before the drugs ever did. They certainly got me started on the idea of a spiritual awakening before the drugs ever did. Though I'm sure I had great drugs as I was being squeezed out of my mama's womb and you know, the natural and, you know, endogenous drugs that were helping me get through that, you know, uh, uh, is it anoxic or uh, stage that, that was happening there. Um, I'm actually pretty convinced that some of these molecules that we have flooding our systems are designed entirely to get us through those kind of moments. Um, and uh, or not designed. They just happened over evolutionary time to uh, work um, and they got reproduced successfully. Yeah, I think that's where I think really do think that's where. Uh, 
I got the idea that one could actually have a spiritual awakening. So when I got to LSD, uh, after eight years of sobriety myself in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I really had a spiritual awakening. It was it was such a uh, such a um, an expansive opening uh, uh, a journey into an entirely new space, a new uh, way of being, a new state of mind that I deeply, deeply appreciated. From the very first time? From the very first LSD experience. I was primed for it, I think. Um, I had known that Bill Wilson, who was a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, had used LSD in kind of the divination of uh, coming up with the 12 steps. Uh, and I'd also known that... Uh, that you know, people had taken a lot of psychedelics at the Grateful Dead shows that I were I was going to, and that some people had spiritual awakenings, spiritual emergences. I didn't couldn't call it that. I didn't have the language for that at that time, as far as spiritual emergence. But many many people did, and I had heard about those kind of things. So I I was primed. My head was already primed for it when I took LSD for the first time. Where well, I was also watching, you know, my friend was like, "Hey, let's rent the brief history of time." And uh, he, you know, middle, you know, like right as it's starting, he's like, "Oh, by the way, I've got some acid that a f- friend of ours had made or supplied, or I mean, he made it." But, uh, um, yeah, it was quite an interesting moment, and uh, I'm so grateful I did, and so grateful that my life took that turn. It was such an amazing turn to go from building log homes in the, uh, you know, the Panhandle of Idaho to. Uh, going to school. It's like I went down to the school that very, I mean, I stayed awake all through the sunrise and went down to the school and uh, demanded they let me in. <laughs> it's like a bit of a Ken Kesey story. Uh, I don't, maybe it's a bit of a Ken Kesey story. I know he took some acid while he was working in the hospital or something. Or I don't know if he was just experimenting on himself or the government actually got to him first, but uh, not familiar with the actual ins and outs of that. But yeah, um, the opportunity presented itself. I took it, and I am so glad I did. So what was your your early experiences uh, with these like? I mean, how did they change things right away? It, uh, the changing right away was uh, both kind of uh, a bit of messianic and a bit of um, – I just – I could see things uh, clearer. I could see patterns in humans that I wasn't seeing before. I could see patterns in the ways of, of my own being that I hadn't seen before. Uh, I think the real change was that I woke up linguistically. I woke up to the power of my words to create my world. What, which of the fields you were studying fascinated you the most and seemed the most helpful for trying to get close to this thing? Biology, botany, anthropology, physics, linguistics. That's all. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that seems to be a good collection to start with. That is a good one. Chemistry. and and it's and but chemistry is where you ended up. Uh, well, chemistry is most of your chemistry is the central science, and so it's like to consolidate myself around that. Uh, you know, we call chemistry the central science because I can't even move my lips right now for, and this microphone can't pick up this sound, and you can't hear this without chemistry doing its magic, which is governed by the laws of physics, and sometimes really easily expressible in mathematics, and sometimes not. And so that holy trinity there, chemistry, physics, and mathematics, became the core around which I constellated everything. Uh, And I really, 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 really appreciated evolutionary anthropology and medical anthropology for its influence on my mind. And then you bring in the anthropology of belief systems uh, and, um, you know, a focus on our, you know, the five great rituals, birth, death, puberty, marriage, reproduction. Um, All religion seems to be constellated around those parts. 
uh, or belief systems. Uh, they have usually have something to say about each of them, and uh, and back to sex lover and who you can fuck and who you can't. Uh, what are the rules of uh, what are the social mores related to sexual reproduction, parenting, and all that stuff? Uh, and then later in my years to focus on uh, death and dying and the, the the mindsets that we've created around that particularly in relation to something like Ernest Becker's Denial of Death or uh, the movie or the documentary that they made I don't know, early 2000s called Flight from Death is really important on that conceptualization to realize that our culture, our culture is a response to our death terror and uh, that, you know, everything we see around us, uh, you know, I, I drive a vehicle equipped with safety belts uh, for my death terror, and I think some of the drugs should be sold at the drugstores with their little warning labels so that we can say, oh, this is the things you got to worry about. And, uh, but yeah, I've, I've just been fascinated by learning and uh, linguistics, uh, chemistry, and physics and biology are probably the core of what I'm most interested in. Um, I, I, you know, I say linguistics, medical, medical anthropology is, uh, especially when you look at the, uh, uh, attempting to try to categorize it, 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 it you know, you can observe things, but you're going to inherently interpret, interpret what you're observing and you can say things and you can listen to people say things about what they find therapeutically effective. Uh, and, you're still going to wind up interpreting. You're going to make your own linguistics up about it, your own semiotics, your own symbolic structure about it. Uh, and the same with cognitive liberty. It all goes, it goes back to this idea that, uh, of language, and that's why, quite interestingly, you find uh, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion grouped together both in the European Convention on Human Rights and in the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. And that's all back to this idea that uh, the complex symbolic constructs we form in our mind uh, can be really important to us and can be therapeutically effective. There's this quite interesting sentence that I read once upon a time, and I've repeated many, many times. Uh, therapeutic efficacy boils down to a declaration made by a sufferer or a healer, and the sufferer and the healer can be the same person. The declaration is listened with credibility or faith, and it causes that uh, that emotional, psychological, spiritual transformation that leads to well-beingness and healing, uh, or therapeutic efficacy, and uh, for some could be you know faith healing in a church, you know whoosh hand on the forehead, you know singing in tongues or whatever, and for others, you know, and actually to keep the biblical uh, uh, examples going, uh, there's the the woman who said, "If I could but touch his robes, I will be healed." She made that declaration to herself. Then she touched his robe, uh, Jesus's robes, according to the story. And uh, Jesus turned and beamed at her and said, your faith and your declaration hath healed you. And so it's uh, how do we, what do we declare for ourselves, especially in psychedelic or in theogenic space uh, in relation to the experiences we're having. How did those studies, uh, the intellectual studies, help you to start figuring out your own mind and the constructs in there with the help of the drugs? Well, it's very interesting when you're in psychedelic space and you understand that our or that my words create my world, that I am actually languaging into existence uh, the experience I'm having. Um, it helps me be more mindful of the words I use as I'm experiencing um, psychedelic effect. 
uh, or even just have, you know, I think psychedelics actually go way beyond the idea of these particular substances that we get all fascinated about. Life is psychedelic. It is mind manifesting. And um, cleaning up my language has been probably the greatest thing I've ever done for myself. Cleaning up how so? Becoming tight uh, with my words and becoming aware that uh, if I'm not programming someone, like you guys listening right now, if I'm not programming someone out there with my words, if I'm listening, I'm being programmed. Uh, and the general idea is that be aware of the programming that I'm the environment I surround myself with, with the audio environment, the the phonemes that are being expressed in my environment. If I hang out with a bunch of people that have real larval thinking modes, then I'm going to wind up with real larval thinking modes. And if I hang out with a bunch of people that have uh, much more enlightened, uh, very tight linguistic uh, prowess, then I find that I raise up myself in that same tight linguistic prowess and I become uh, much more effective at uh, causing transformation for myself and for others, especially with my words. Hmm. That makes sense. It's, uh, there's a Terran sign, thou shalt never consume media, thou shalt always create it. Yeah, sorry, Terrence, that's really nice and lovely, and <laughs> we're obviously going to consume some media occasionally, and even your media just now. Thanks, hon. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so where did your studies take you then? Well, I mean, they obviously gave me the skills and the mindset to uh, become a psychedelic chemist. Um, you know, the tool set that I developed uh, working at the chem labs for five and a half years and uh, the linguistic mindset that I developed through all that anthropology and all the linguistics and all the stuff there in school was really important. I also wound up getting involved in landmark education for many years and they really focus on linguistics. I had actually trained for three years to become a forum leader, forum leader with them and, and uh, uh, you know, they found out Dave, the center manager in Seattle, found out one day my girlfriend at the time uh, we were late. And he's like, why were you late? And he asked her and she's like, well, you know, because Casey had to pick up 10 pounds of weed. <laughs> and I got pulled into the office there and he's like, well, Casey, we can't have you dealing weed. <laughs> so you either got to give that up or you got to go. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of invested in that. So I think I will go. <laughs> I'll be back after I end the drug war. <laughs> Still working on that. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> ah, so you're another. So you, landmark was important for you too. Very, very important. That's great. Yeah, very yeah. significant. And matter of fact, there was a moment in the trial when I was actually running my own trial. The judge start, stopped me at the and he said, "Mr. Hardison, are you sure you are not legally trained?" And I said, "No, I'm not." He's like, "Well, how did you learn to speak like that?" And I just said, "I have to credit landmark education because I really learned communication skills right there." Wow. Um. So how did it uh, evolve that you started becoming an underground psychedelic chemist? Well, I, I don't remember what happened. I bought a book, uh, and it had that flyer in it. Maybe it was just the MAPS Bulletin, and it had the flyer for the Entheobotany Seminars, and I had it, and I tried to go uh, one year, and then I couldn't muster up the money, and they wouldn't give me the scholarship, and then... Um, uh, the next year, I I had more time to think about it, and so I uh, really focused on getting like the money together. And I got a scholarship from my my university from the anthropology department, and but I got the scholarship, but I couldn't. I still needed to pay for the flights and stuff. And my friend uh, uh, K Dog Loving Hawk uh, decided that he was going to call his parents and say, "Mom, we really need to go to this, and you really need to pay for it." And she bought it. She totally bought it. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great mom. It was really awesome. <laughs> and I owe her to this day for my life <laughs> so much. <laughs> and so a lot really coalesced around 
going to that? Well, that was a coming home. That was like a, um, I mean, that really was a, a welcome home type experience. It was like uh, I was at an international guard, uh, gathering, international garden. I was at an international gathering of uh, pharmacophiles and entheogen aficionados. And, you know, there were 60 of us for the first week and another, like, I don't know, people mixed over for the next week. Like, just, there was like 120 people gathered in the, you know, near the Mayan temples in Palenque and taking lots of psychedelics and sharing stories and like the linguistics was fabulous because you get people with all these linguistic groups and the language crossover and the learning, the accelerated learning that took place there was just absolutely fabulous. Plus I was at these Mayan temple sites, which was just fabulous to run around on psychedelics and uh, particularly 2CD7 because I took a lot of it while I was there. Lorenzo actually told that story. I, I was with heard. Lorenzo that day. <laughs> <laughs> I was with him. Yeah, he, uh, he, thought, he loved that when you come charging in being like, we're doing a research study. Uh, he, exactly what happened. I love this line that he wrote in the, the area. We're going to break some anonymity from my subjective bioassay research study. Lorenzo was the line in there, minimal haunting by my usual demons. I'm like, I still use that to this day. I love that line so much. <laughs> it was really good. It was really good. Yeah, no, I just, I didn't know I was going to do that. I had no idea that I was going to, so I was actually laying on the pool there at Chon Ka, which is the place we were at, the conference center. And I'm just laying at this one spot and I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty overwhelmed with the 2CD7 at this moment. I'm kind of like my arm over my head and I'm like, I open my eyes and I look up and there's this like psychedelic super eagle cloud structure zooming over my head and I look up and I, li- I sit up and I'm looking around and I can just tell other people are having these deep psychedelic experiences at the same time as me. And I'm like, holy shit, I can actually study this. I can actually ask these people a bunch of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I popped up and I ran over to Sasha's uh, little cabana there and I ran over to his cabana and I'm like, I've got to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I had wrote down a list of questions all, you know, on my way over. I was like, you know, I started, you know, trying to assemble it. And then uh, I get to Sasha and I'm like, what do you think I should ask? And blah, 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 blah. And then we came up with uh, a bit of a more coherent structure to mine. I had a pretty coherent structure, but he made a couple of suggestions that were really cool. Uh, dosage and duration and things like that. And, uh, um, um, and then I wrote it up on my computer and hitchhiked back into the town and then came back and it's like I was still high. And I came back and um, I started handing out these flyers to people, including Larry or Lorenzo. And I and I. Uh, um, uh, yeah, nobody, not a single one of those persons knew they were going to becoming re- become research participants until I generated that survey and they filled it out. And uh Yeah. And that I believe that's available online, right? People yeah, can read uh, that. It's uh, yeah, it's at the Maps Bulletin, Volume Ten, Number Two, which is the Terrence McKenna death issues, which is quite interesting. And the back matter says something really important on the death issue. I'm going to return to that right now, which is the idea that if psychedelics can secure that death has no sting, then this community will have done the greatest service to humanity that could possibly be done for suffering humanity. It's like, you know, that death has no sting. And that line from his talk at Esalen in '99 is in the um, is on the back matter of that particular volume 10, number two maps bulletin found at the maps website, maps.org. Nice. <laughs> Nothing like an unexpected research. Yeah. No, <laughs> it was an impromptu study, a total impromptu study. And I, uh, uh, Carla was there, Carla Higdon. Uh, unfortunately she's no longer with us. Uh, Carla Hig- Higdon, um, uh, was there and, uh, with her, really lovely partner alex and they uh, we were having a great time together i'm like can i get this published in the bulletin she's like absolutely and we got it in the bulletin 
and crazy enough, uh, uh, crazy enough, uh, um, um, Daryl Lemaire, who is Sasha's kind of scale up guy, uh, Sasha would make something and pass it off to Daryl. Daryl would make it. They check activity they shared amongst their research group, and Daryl lived out near uh, Myron. And they would share it, and their partners were into psychedelic therapy at that time. And um, um, yeah, so, and then Daryl would learn to scale it up. He'd be like, well, let's see how you can make this in larger amounts. And uh, Daryl uh, would read that particular uh, MAPS bulletin. And uh, he sent me this letter pretty damn cryptic uh it was like you know i experimented with these things made lots of them here's this little smart pills booklet um you can find that online at the daryl lamare vault at arrowid.org arrowid.org o-r-g i mean um the uh um uh, and uh um he wrote this little cryptic letter to me and i kind of ignored it i kind of got a little you know flash of paranoia as i sometimes do just were like "Mm, i'm not so sure and it was like the first time that i experienced like Oh shit! Now I'm becoming public because I've written this article. There's people that are starting to ask questions of me, and then so I just kind of went back out on like I was on string cheese doing like some bunch of string cheese incident shows at the time, and uh, went back out and did some more of them. And then I came back to my post office box, and there was another letter from him. It was like, "Oi, I'm trying to give you something. I got something you want. We need to talk." Blah 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 blah. It was just a lot more like you know in my face about it, and I, re- I actually respected that. I was really liked that, and. Uh, he uh, I, he gave me his phone number in that letter, and I I was in the Moscow Idaho post office, and right next to my postal box was like you know a few feet away was the po- was a phone, and I dialed him up right there, threw some quarters in it, and went for it, and agreed to meet him the full moon of March of two thousand and one to pick up this lab equipment, which was uh, all I needed a very uh, a sufficient laboratory to uh, make lots of psychedelics. It was older equipment, but it was still able to do the trick. So that's the origin story. That's the origin story. And it kind of starts there on that deck. Actually, it starts in room 48 of Chon Kaw. We're going to put it in one spot. I mean, but then again, does it start on the lake shore when I got the LSD? Or does it start when I was born billions of years ago? 3.48 years and 4 billion years ago, according to Bruce Damer. Uh, where does it start? I don't know. Um, so what were the Place first... your bets. Place your bets. <laughs> where does it start? <laughs> So what? How did it go as you were first starting to practice manufacturing these things and testing them, uh, and figuring well, out what I mean, worked? God, uh, so the first thing I had to do was I had all the material to make two CD, and the very first thing I had to do was uh, do the Vilsmeyer hack synthesis of uh, uh, making the benzaldehyde, the the two five dimethoxy benzaldehyde, uh, and um, the first couple of times I the first well the first time I ran it I wasn't really sure that I had done it effectively, and I didn't have you know. Uh, you know, any GCMS or FTIR or any equipment to figure that out. Um, and, but then I just, I was able to, I was able to figure that out. It took me, a, it took me a couple shots and I'm like, oh no, I definitely have it. This is the right thing. And I was going down the right path. And so the first few steps was making 2CD and, uh, um, yeah, it was really a serious blessing eating my first molecule. What was it like to have to eat? Have one that you synthesized yourself. It was fucking incredible, man. I was sitting there at the family ranch in Idaho, and uh, and I had my double decker school bus there, and I just made this in it. And I'm out on the couch, and I've uh, you know I've tripped there a number of times, and I'm looking over this family farm, and 
you know, I got this set of trees that are down across our, like the creek that runs down the family farm. And there's, you know, like there are, again, eagles. And there's eagles up in it. And they're just hanging out. And they're just really, you know, just so majestic in this place where I'm at. And I'm like, I knew, like, from the second time, like, the first time I took acid, I knew my life had changed. The second time, like, the first time I took mushrooms, that was, uh, that was messianic. That was like, holy fucking shit, they're going to crucify me for what I know and what I intend and what I want. And um, I'm sitting there, and I'm, like, sitting there on this couch. I got this couch futon thing on the outside of my bus. Um, and I'm sitting there um, just observing everything and noticing the trees warble and do their Persian carpets kind of dance and just thinking, holy shit, I've totally found my way. I'm indoctrinated into the apoptes, the, you know, those who had seen the holy, because I am definitely experiencing it right now. And not only have I seen the holy, I can make this. And cause others to see it. And I was like, fucking hell, how far have I come? Yes! And uh, that was a serious blessing that moment. I really appreciated it. Wow. So uh, so what did you start to learn to synthesize after that? Uh, well, I kept doing the D a couple of times. I went around the corners with the D several times. And then I, um, I eventually said, it's time to make 2CB. And so I made some 2CB, and that was, I mean, oh, holy shit. And it's like, oh, God, I've done it again. Now I'm, really, now I'm out and running. And that was so great because it was like it had that uh, really lovely, um, not only was it that touched within and the ability to work in the, uh, the entheogenic space to heal tra- suffering and transformation, especially for those who I was giving it to, um, and for myself, the, uh, I, I started calling it 2CB, who you want to be. And um, it really, uh, it, it was really amazing. And I uh, took, I had a little bit of it, and I took some up to a, a conference and started giving it away. And it was, it was a really successful moment. And then shortly thereafter, I'd gone to the Whistler and Theobotany seminars conference, and I had met an incredible dude named Clay Adam Prepsky, who is unfortunately now dead. Uh, um, he OD'd on, um, he OD'd on. Uh, um, methadone one day trying to come off a psychedelic trip just took a slug of someone's methadone wanting to go to bed and had respiratory collapse and never woke up and it's a total fucking tragedy because he's an absolutely brilliant theoretical chemist and i'd met him there one day i get this random call from him and he's like hey got a venue i'm like got a venue what do you mean he's like do you have a venue and i'm like what the fuck is a venue and i thought about it for a moment and i'm like oh yeah i got a lab i didn't say that over the phone i'm like yeah i got a venue he's like okay i'll be there in a few hours so he flew from Arizona to Spokane. I picked him up at the airport, and he's carrying a bottle of, you know, half a liter of uh, uh, the the methylene dioxyphenyl two propanone labeled shampoo. <laughs> he's carrying it on the plane, which you could do before nine eleven, <laughs> but you can't do now. Anyway, so he shows up with this, and I'm like, oh shit, I guess this is what we're doing. And I made my first batch of MDMA, and then him and I jetted off to the shamanism and tantra conference in Nepal, and continued our adventures wow so 2cb then mdma uh which ones came after that lsd dmt or lsd mescaline dmt actually i think it was mescaline lsd DM, uh no it was lsd mescaline dmt wow isn't Five. mescaline one yeah. of the 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 uh the holy grails of 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 uh, yeah, and it's artificial ridiculous. Synthesis? Oh, it's synthesis? so ridiculous. So ridiculously easy. Get your three, four, five trimethoxybenzaldehyde and throw you, do your little nitrostyrene re- reaction, and you can do it exactly like the nitrostyrene reaction for two CH, 
and then you reduce it with uh, LAH and uh, um, t- and with tetrahydrofuran and quench that LAH properly. Careful with the LAH. Don't get any water on it. And um, you have your prototypical psychedelic phenethylamine. Wow. Um, were there any syntheses that you were particularly proud of? Or really tough to pull off? Well, with the learn? MDMA, we did the uh, the nitromethane synthesis because you didn't need the uh, uh, the methylamine. You could make it if you do the uh, the nitromethane version. You could make the methylamine in situ. It's quite ridiculously easy. You can find the write up on it. Ritter's write up on it, and uh, Gonzo's write up on it in uh, um, uh, in the rhodium archive. If you scroll down and look for the archives in the uh, in the uh, in the Irwid, in the vaults of Irwid. Oh man! So you were really you were off and running then. You had the, all the big players under your belt. I was at that ro- point. I, exactly. I had the. I was off and running, and I was in Nepal and had a venue. Had a, I had a venue <laughs> all the way back at the house that I packed up. What were those years like uh, to be an underground synthesizer? I mean, how much fear versus how much fun? That's a great question. Fear versus fun. Very very little fear. Shit, tons of fun. <laughs> I was having. An, I went on this kind of experience where i started generating what i could what i'd like to call an endless summer um it was just like one amazing experience event uh just amazing love and great people and the connectivity the hyper connectivity that developed as a result of that um was unprecedented in my life and you know just the love and the camaraderie and the i mean the Fuck, I went out and wound up living with the Bushmen in Namibia as a result of this work. You know, it's like if I hadn't been interested in psychedelics, I would have never met the, you know, the beautiful woman that I went to Namibia with and lived with the Bushmen. And, um, yeah. Were you working with other plant medicines through this or were you sticking straight to syntheses? Uh, no, I was working with other plant medicines. Um, uh, you know, certainly for my personal experience, ayahuasca, ibogaine. Um, my partner and I at the time were, uh, well, she and more than I. I was just really holding space for her and really supporting her. Uh, was an ibogaine therapist, uh, underground ibogaine therapist, and wow. uh, helping people, you know, get off of heroin and cocaine addictions and um, having some good successes. We learned a great number of things. The most importantly was how. Uh, how vital it is to have a support group to integrate back into or integrate into to help you stay clean from heroin or cocaine or to develop uh, more moderation or, you know, better habits with care of oneself, uh, especially when you're talking about uh, um, the psychosomatic or the, uh, the social problems one's generating for oneself, the psycho-spiritual problems one's generating for oneself. Um, it's really important to, um, address those issues. That's a good lesson. Cause I hear a lot of that, especially around the New York city recovery scene about, well, there's this thing, you just take it once and then you're fine. And it's, it's not, it's so much more work. That comes yeah, afterwards. no, it's like, I mean, I, uh, when you say the New York scene, are you talking about, uh, you know, it's like Dana, uh, showed up at that. So that's the reason actually I went to, uh, England was cause I was going to the first Abigail conference to support, uh, my friend who was putting that on. Uh, she'd subsequently become my partner and, and we, uh, uh, she was doing that underground Ibogaine therapy and, um, I, I showed up really to support her, but there I met Dana and, 
Uh, I know that Lotsoff had come up with the Ibogaine treatment for heroin addiction cessation just through mere observation. Uh, and I, uh, I think it is really important that there's an integrated community that can help support people to generate a new linguistic mindset. Um, and just for anyone out there who doesn't know, Dana Beal is the one of the great life forces behind the Ibogaine movement, getting the idea out there that this plant medicine can do a hell of a lot for people with opiate or alcohol or behavioral addictions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the reverie that one experiences under the influence of Ibogaine is uh, vital to possibly unwinding the psychosomatic problems one might as, or psychospiritual problems one might have developed for themselves through their experiences, this particular organism on planet Earth. <laughs> and that must have been fascinating for you to watch oh with God, fucking knowing fucking recovery, knowing the history of totally. acid with Bill Wilson and totally. seeing Ibogaine at work. Yeah, absolutely. I really uh, appreciated it. I really, really appreciate it. I mean, I also really have deep appreciation for the uh, – I have amazing reverence for the fact that the 12-step community uh, creates a community that is – uh, supportive of transforming one's lives and having people around that support and uplift and uh, encourage the transformations is really important. You know, it's like I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to take Ibogaine, come off of heroin, kick heroin, and then go right back to the exact same group of people that you spent your life using heroin with. That would, I just can't see that being very effective, but I understand people's ties to their family and their community and how difficult that might be. Um, I don't have direct experience because I've never really become a heroin addict. Not that I haven't used it. I just never developed a, a long-term affinity for it. Um, you know, I think that it's really, really very vital that people create new communities for themselves if they want to let go of some of the spiritual pathologies. It's not that you can't go back to that community, especially if you're more grounded, more upright, more mindful. Uh, and reintegrate into those communities and possibly not use drugs with them. But there's the risk. I mean, what life do you want? Who do you want to be? Did you uh, experience any pushback from any of these fellowships If you, talking about psychedelics? None whatsoever because I left AA. Okay. Um, I, uh, the only pushback I ever felt from any sort of fellowship was that day with uh, the center manager of Landmark Education can't be a drug dealer and be a forum leader at the same time. And that's I can see the reasonability of that. Um, so it was, uh, um, yeah, there's no pushback from any of those. My father was, uh, an interesting experience because, uh, he had been sober for so many years, but he eventually came right around. Matter of fact, at one point, my dad, uh, out on a motorcycle tour was very curious to find Sasha and came here and spent several days with Sasha trying to understand what the fuck was going on with his son. And he came back and he was totally impressed of what I was doing. Sasha had won him over. My dad had never took, didn't take anything. I don't think Sasha offered him anything, but whatever Sasha said to him worked. Wow. My dad was the kind of dad that was crazy enough to check up on me like that. And I love him for that. He was always that way. Check in, checking shit out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That was really fucking funny. He comes back because I mean, you know, he tells me it's been a couple of days with Sasha. I'm like, I haven't even fucking done that. <laughs> that, was, that was funny. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty good to yeah. get the acceptance from parents. I think that's what we're all looking for. Mm -hmm. um, now, was there, as you were probably getting a small name for yourself for being uh, a synthesizer, was there pushback from people close to you who are worried for you or worried about where this might be taking you? There were people that were worried. 
there were people that were genuinely worried, the concern that I was being uh, more vocal than uh, was required. But I actually had this, you know, funny thing go on where I thought because I was part of this uh, this entheogenia or entheogenae that this race or stock of beings that who knew they were divine within that I was part of this community that I was actually in a kind of a protected realm. Um, I was wrong about that. Uh, and for anyone out there having similar grandiose ideas about how protected they are because of these molecules, I'd urge them to kind of think again and be a little bit quieter, a little bit calmer, especially if you're up to anything, you know, clandestine that the government might be concerned about. I once heard the year would say you, um, you shouldn't be an activist and a, a producer at the same time. Yeah. It's probably less wise to be an activist and a producer at the same time. And I was both back then. I was definitely both back then. And so, you know, so when I got arrested, I, you know, I was, was able to really push hard on the, uh, on the activism, on the cognitive liberty front, on the idea that we should have the right to think for ourselves, provided, provided, provided we harm no one. Yeah. So in terms of uh, protection, did you have any idea that this bus was coming? Did you have an inkling? No, as a matter of fact, I said probably the dumbest thing I've ever said. I'm sure maybe others will argue with this, but uh, uh, finding more dumb things. But the dumbest thing I possibly ever said, I said to this beautiful woman I was in the vehicle with, and I said, I feel like I'm flying under the radar. Four hours or five hours later, I'm being arrested. How, uh, how many did they mob you with? Well, where I was, uh, they, uh, just one guy actually approached me. I was in this uh, the Sanctuary Cafe in Brighton, and this guy came down and leaned into a, my ear, and he said, Mr. Hardison? And the moment he said that, and the way he said it, I'm like, oh, he's a cop. I'm being arrested. And uh, I said, yes, sir. And he's like, I'm here to arrest you for being concerned in the manufacture of controlled substances. And I'm like, well, how would you like to do this? <laughs> and he said, as quietly as possible. And I'm like, that works for me. And then I got him to police all my equipment that I had sitting out there and, uh, you know, in the cafe where I was recording a good friend of that same girl, a uh, beautiful woman, um, play just absolutely I mean, the Angel's music, the way she sang, all about love, super lovely stuff. And I was recording her, and they brought me out of there calmly and quietly and offered me a cup of tea. And no. I did. Yes. <laughs> they did. This is <laughs> England, remember. Would you, like a couple of t- would you like a couple of tea with your arrest? And, uh, of course, I had to smart off, so I said, tea, Earl Grey, hot. <laughs> Just to fuck with them. But uh, uh, they put me in a paper suit and took me to the police station and attempted to question me the next day and I just ignored them through several days of attempting to question me. And uh, quite early on in my uh, experience, I knew that I was going to have to represent myself if I wanted to represent myself on the basis of cognitive liberty. And uh, so I did. I had a barrister who had been actually suggested to me by uh, a very, a very uh, dear friend who was in a good, very high position in British society. <laughs> and uh, uh, she I said, suggested him and I got the guy his name's Rudy Fortz and he's a great guy and all but he uh, just was, felt professionally embarrassed to represent me on drug charges on the basis of uh, cognitive liberty human rights and I said well if you're you know you got a forked tongue and speak for the queen then you certainly can't speak for me and I've got to do this myself so I um, so I chose to represent myself and went said about studying said about studying that law that the um that the judge wondered whether I'd actually studied law formally and I faked it till I made it through that experience and I learned a lot really rapidly and uh 
curiously enough, it's like I was tried in Lewis Crown Court, and that's where uh, you know they had issued uh, a warrant for Thomas Paine way back when for sedition or something. And, you know, and I th- that's a really fitting thing to be doing, talking about you know drugs and drug policy and drug law in a court built with opium money. You know, the uh, uh, the, uh, the courtroom I was in was super opulent, but the cells below were the originals, and uh, uh, yeah, they were old and uh, dark and manky, and uh, lots of boogers, lots of blood, lots of spit, piss on. I don't know, it was disgusting, but uh, uh, yeah. It was down in there that I took my breaks from the trial and um, formulated my next moves. And I just kept pushing forward on the idea that I should have the right to think for myself and that you can't make me guilty by statute for actions that are intrinsically innocent. If it's intrinsically innocent for a tobacco grower to grow tobacco, then why isn't it intrinsically innocent for someone to grow weed? Um, If it's intrinsically innocent to produce alcohol, then why isn't it intrinsically innocent to produce LSD? All these things are about altering our mental functioning. Uh, you know, I managed to force the government into admitting that this was about alteration of mental functioning, and that, um, and that they extend that long-standing tradition and tolerance of altering mental functioning to alcohol and tobacco users. But uh, I could never get them to extend that to me. Um, uh, I have yet to do that. I know in time that that principle will be what is at the core of all of this. It's like whether it's a um, uh, you know, a private palliative, a sacramental freedom or cognitive liberty. These principles will endure and they will cause the transformation in time. And, you know, just uh, getting arrested and being able to speak my piece and public, be, becoming really public on the issue of cognitive liberty has spread that meme around the world uh, intensely. And uh, it's really important that we keep spreading the idea that we should have the right to alter our mental functioning as we see fit, provided we don't harm others, which is a John Stewart male principle of basic liberty uh i should have the privacy uh to be secure in my person's papers and possessions from unreasonable intrusions into my mind or how i operate my mind or, and the or, and the substance in which i choose to do that with of the people sitting the court as you were pushing these ideas forward did you see anyone where you felt like you were making a connection yeah, I felt like I was really making a connection with a uh, couple of the jurors. Actually, I found this one girl that came in on the jury, jury one day, and I'm like, she's been up all fucking night partying her ass off. She's totally with me. And and in the end, there was a it was a complex trial, and I had I was facing uh, I was facing nine charges. Uh, they whittled it to eight, like in the middle of it, and then um, you know we whittled that down, and I managed to get six convictions out of those charges. Um, it's quite interesting. I didn't get convicted of making 2CI, which is quite wise because I hadn't made it. And I escaped conviction for mescaline, which I had made, but they couldn't understand that I had not used Sasha's method, that I had actually just decided to follow my own version of just, I mean, hell, it was just a benzaldehyde. I was just needed to make a nitrostyrene and reduce it, and then I'd have mescaline. And they had the bottle that said MNS on it, which is mescaline nitrostyrene in my mind. And it was orange, and it was yum-yum orange even, or mostly yum-yum orange. It was kind of a little bit more yellow. But uh, um, it, uh, um, they just couldn't figure out because I, you know, they tried me on the basis of Sasha's pathways. If it, however Sasha wrote it in the book, that's how they tried me. And because Sasha did a different reaction for mescaline than I did, I managed to escape that conviction. <laughs> but six overall. But six overall. Um, and then it was. What, nine different prisons over the course of almost 10 years? That's correct. 
nine different prisons in 9.27 years. There's one time, this is actually significant, my life, uh, I've lived my life uh, in many different places. My father was an aerospace engineer and a consultant, so he's on the move to different jobs. And so I wound up in lots of different schools, uh, lots of different towns, and had to learn to make new friends wherever I went. And so that's a really good, beneficial thing. But one day I woke up in a prison cell, and I'd been in that prison cell, that same cell for three years, and I woke up in there and I'm like, this is the longest I've lived in any one spot since I left home. What did, uh, what did it take for you to persevere in there? The real thing it took was acceptance, which I had right away. And the next thing it took was tolerating, uh, living with a bunch of people who thought very larvally, thought very, you know, in the first, second and third circuits at most of the, uh, the Leary circuit system. They thought, you know, in that, uh, biosurvival mode or the anal emotional territorial mode and, recognizing that and observing it, and I could play with it because I knew, you know, the power struggles that people were trying, attempting to be in and things like that. And I could just stay out of it for the most part. Um, it was really quite, it was really quite simple. Once I realized that I could turn my cell, uh, into an Augustinian cave and the, you know, it's my, my sanctuary. It's like, you know, I open my cell door and have nice music playing on there, beautifully decorated cell. Cause I could do that in England and I had my own blankets on my bed. I had a really nice, uh, Pendleton Raven wool blanket on my bed. Uh, that my partner had bought for me at the time and um, that really helped and so did, it really helped having the support of all the people that were sending me money to make phone calls and uh, helping me um, helping me with legal paperwork and um, you know just talking to me when I called them or listening to what I had to say and that really was very helpful um, I didn't do a lot of suffering in there um, it was very minimal minimal haunting by my usual demons and uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, I read a, you know, I had a newspaper every day. So I had a Times of London generally every day, like probably 95% of the time that I was in prison. I had a, uh, either a wing newspaper or I ordered my own newspaper in. And then I had a new scientist and economist coming every week. I had the BBC television and programming, which is fucking superb. It's so amazing. Uh, and I had, uh, you know, uh, good libraries and great gyms and uh, fabulous uh, meal opportunities, meal choices. Like who would have thunk you can go to prison and actually have five meal choices. You have to choose it two weeks in advance, but I tell you, it's way better than getting fucking dung out in the middle of some desert so I can boil it for my children whilst being raped. You know, it's way better than all of that. And I had, you know, hot and cold running water, uh, uh, you know, a uh, flushing toilet. Uh, sometimes I had to share, share a cell, but probably 90% of the times I, I didn't. Maybe only 85, I don't know. I had a single cell, so I had my own sanctuary, you know, and realizing that it was absolutely awesome. I read lots of books. I had smuggled cell phones so I could call people at night and um, keep, keep in communication. And um, I played, you know, amazing amounts of chess. I mean, just like sometimes it'd be like an entire day would go by and all I had done was walk out of my cell door and start playing chess with somebody. And it's bang up time and it's evening and I've just finished playing chess and it's really, you know, it was really cool to be able to take that time for myself because, man, there was nowhere else I was going to get it in my life. Nowhere else since if I got that kind of time and freedom to focus and be with myself. Whew. So England really was that much more civilized. Oh, it's a way civilized place. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's like we don't, it didn't have the gang problems and the, uh, the prison rape problems. It was, it was devoid of that, which was quite amazing because you got to ask the question, what is wrong with America? That that's such a problem. 
Dostoevsky has a great line that to look at the humanity of a nation, look at how it treats its prisoners. Yeah, absolutely. And this nation is just so bad. Yeah. So amazingly bad. Mm-hmm. And that uh, Louisiana is the most <clears throat> arrestingest, the most incarcerated people per capita of anywhere on the globe. Yeah. More than Iran, more than China, more than any other bogeyman you might think. It is yeah. Louisiana, and they are on Angola prison. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. one of the r- most rottenest places on earth I hear. I saw some programs from there. And so what was it like, finally, when... You got that last walk out. It was quite interesting. It was uh, it was uh, an amazing experience in that it was at one moment I was a prisoner and they had let the handcuffs off of me and I went on to escorted onto this uh, plane back to the United States. And the moment I got onto the plane, I was suddenly a f- free human being. One moment they're treating me like I'm a, like I'm a criminal. The next moment, not a single person around me except my partner had any idea that I'd just been through a prison experience. Well, one of the stewardess did. I imagine the captain maybe did, but you know the stewardess knew, but nobody, none of, none of it. Suddenly, I was a normal, free person, able to wander up and down the plane aisles and go to the, you know, just go to the bathroom. Wow, I wouldn't freely. say normal though. What I wouldn't say normal, but probably free. Not, probably not normal. Okay, <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'm probably I'm, I'm I'm an outlier on some graph or two. <laughs> yeah, um, and so what did uh, what did you do once you came home? First thing I did is make love. <laughs> I had to figure out whether it still worked. Um, it did. It was all fine. Everything was fine. Yeah. And because uh, um, you know that nine point two seven was entirely without sex with others, and you know it was. Uh, um, uh, so I went for the cuddling and the sex, sex, and then uh, that we actually wound up at the Coeur d'Alene Resort in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Uh, which is all of you know 500 yards, maybe 700 yards from uh, the place where I buried myself in the pea gravel, and had that spiritual awakening where I knew that this was my path. And so that very morning, we stayed up all night. That very morning, with the sun rising, we went out to that spot in the pea gravel. Wow! Full to cele- circle to celebrate that completion. That full circle, I had done what I said I would do. I had honored my word to myself and to others. Are there any regrets from the time before that? The only real regret, the real genuine regret, is that I was not available to be near my father when he died whilst I was in prison. I mean, he had sailed a boat that I'd bought him with the proceeds of crime uh, up over the North Atlantic to come visit me in prison. Um, And he... That's the same kind of guy that went and saw Sasha, remember? Anyway, so he, uh, and I wasn't there for him. And a friend of mine just a few days ago who I hadn't seen since before, who actually took the photo of me naked in the bus that people love and cherish, um, naked in the bus making drugs, um, I went and visited her the other day, and she's she was like, why did you go so fucking far away? That's what really was hard for your father, was that you'd gone so far away. She had went and saw my father the night before his death. She'd seen him three times in that month that he was dying. And I was talking to him from a cell phone and um, a shady prison cell in England. And I couldn't be there for him. That is a regret. And I regret that I never got to see my grandmother's eyeballs again. She died uh, in, an else, you know, in a dementia state. But at the age of 99, I'd got out two days before her 100th birthday, and she died a few weeks earlier. 
but I, in some aspects, maybe I was spared ever seeing her in that state because the last time I saw her, she was super lovely and vibrant. And I took a picture of her that day, and it still sticks in my mind now. So I got to see her my last days with her that way. So those are the only regrets. I mean, it's like the rest of it was just life experience. It's This is my life, and this is what I was experiencing. So how did your activism continue once you... Uh, got back here. Well, obviously, uh, God, it continues to this moment right here at this microphone. Um, I, uh, um, you know, right as I got out, I was interviewed by a number of different people uh, on this basic principle. And you know, my activism continues, and then I speak about it. I continue to write about it. Uh, I continue to be a proselyte for the meme of cognitive liberty. Uh, I think thinking for myself. It's funny that I even think that. I think that thinking for myself, outside of the what authority dictates I should be thinking, the the narrow field, the narrow parameters that authority thinks I should operate my mind at, uh, is a really important uh, principle. It's one of the most important principles I know of to ever embrace humanity. You know, the idea that there was a guillotine at one time to chop people's heads off, especially for spreading heretical ideas makes total sense in the idea if you cut off the, the 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 fountain in which someone speaks some meme some idea into the populace if you cut that fountain off by cutting their head off then you're in a really great situation when cicero was killed uh some woman that hated him took his tongue out and nailed it to the wall don't like the way people i mean in cicero's oratories or you know that book of collections of those there's some wisdom in there there's some real interesting stuff uh yeah i know the idea of taking someone's tongue out or uh cutting someone's head off makes complete sense or excommunicating them for heretical ideas and heresies or heresis simply means to choose other than what is part of the uh the orthodox doctrine and the idea that i've chosen uh something that's unorthodox to the powers that be as far as many of the powers that be, it's totally, un, totally not unorthodox in the fact that they've definitely used these and tried to weaponize these molecules, and they understand the states that these produce, and, and you know they've created uh, psych- psychological operations to like uh, study these things and to inculcate these things into groups of people and to uh, uh, oppress other groups of people and to uh, that you know these are not unknown to the government. They have studied these and used these and not very often for good means and the fact that i totally disregarded them and uh their their dictates to pursue my own path and my own freedom uh they found upsetting and um i wish they didn't find it upsetting i wish they just let us do what we want and you know provided we don't harm others i mean that's really a simple principle that's so fucking simple the idea that is if you harm others there's already rules against that We've already formulated those over, you know, a couple, you know, a couple thousand years of the idea of the rule of law, uh, and then specifically in the last few hundred years with the, you know, uh, the law as king rather than the king as law. If we just look at that, we've actually created all the laws that are necessary to stop people uh, from harming others uh, from their actions or not necessarily stop them, but at least punish them or bring that, bring the full weight of the law to bear on them for their responsibilities. Um, if I'm using psychoactive substances and I'm harming no one, I do not see how this affects the government. Maybe I'm not going to buy that, 
you know, buy some product that they want to make lots of tax money on. Maybe I'm actually going to be, you know, pro environment. Maybe I'm going to be, you know, uh, anti-war and anti-authoritarian, which these all things might be harms for them in the long term, you know, long term idea of a tyrannical government. But, you know, governments are instituted to protect property of every sort. And my mind is property that, you know, I want them to protect my use of my mind effectively. And they haven't done that yet. But we are here at Shulgin Farm uh, in California where, you know, several hundred psychedelic substances were made, like, you know, on the benches that are, you know, meters from me at this very moment. Um, and my first exposure to what would become the meme of cognitive liberty was in Sasha's books. And, it, and I believe it was actually in TCAL. Um, you know, his conversations on the Constitution there towards the end of the the, the novel portion of it, right before all the, uh, what people consider the recipe portions of it. TCAL, Tryptamines I Have Known and Loved. It's a companion book to Phenethylamines I Have Known and Loved, which has a subtitle of A Chemical Love Story. Uh, and TCAL has a, the, you know, it's the continuation of that chemical love story. And I, I was the first place I had heard about this conceptualization of cognitive liberty or freedom of thought. And I don't think he even yet, Sasha didn't use the words cognitive liberty. It wasn't quite, it was, it was uh, a few years later, I asked uh, Richard Glenn Boyer whether it was him who had come up with it. And he, I don't think he was very clear in his communication with me, but it was between Thomas Roberts, Sasha Shulgin, and Richard Glenn Boyer that came up with the principle, uh, the, or the words for cognitive liberty, another fancy way of saying freedom of thought. Hi, kids. And uh, um, cognitive liberty just really puts it down to the the nuances of the biochemistry. I should have the right to have the cognitions I want. Period. That's good. And that actually brings me one of the hard questions I like to have near the end, which is if you were put in charge of regulating how these substances could be put out in the world with some certain harm reduction that perhaps is necessary – what would you do? That's very interesting that you asked me that question because that's one of the things I spent a very long time on my uh, prison cell bed studying and thinking about. And in my uh, August eighth uh, of two thousand and nine appeal against sentence or not appeal against appeal against conviction uh, arguments in support of appeal, uh, somewhere in the second half of it, where I'm talking about the common law, I talk about these ideas of. Uh, uh, reasonable differentiations directly related to the object of regulation that uh, are of interest to anybody who is attempting to to protect the public purse uh, from the harms that could be attendant to drug use. Uh, And so there are reasonable distinctions, differentiations that are to be made between drug use harmful to others and drug drug use harmful to oneself, drug use harmful to others uh, that are able to make competent informed choice and drug use that are uh, uh, harmful to those who aren't able to make competent informed choice. Uh, And, uh, you know, ways of differentiation between the use of police power and the use of health and emergency powers um, and they are clearly written down there, and uh, if you would be so kind as to attach them to the well, – I'll make sure that you get them. They are quite – to this day still – I've read them – I went back and read them a few months ago. To this day, they still are the most concise formulation of a regulatory structure that I could think of, and they are in, 
completely operable now under the Misuse of Drugs Act in the United Kingdom and under the Controlled Substances Act in the United States of America. You can actually put them in effect now were we to get a smart Secretary of State regulating effectively for the use of these uh, molecules, their production, their supply, their import, export, all those verbs that are regulated by the law. Oh, that would be great to see. Okay, we'll make sure to have a link to that in the show notes. All right, this is uh, totally available on Irwid. It's the draft arguments in support of grounds. It's 44 pages long. It starts, uh, the whole thing starts a few paragraphs before for the idea of the how would you regulate. Uh, and I boil it down to this. With respect to drug use, it could be called self-administration. The law, the principles of law afford three reasonable differentiations fairly related to the object of regulation, which is reducing drug harm. A primary differentiation between drug use that is reasonably safe to the agent and does not result in harm to others, and drug use that is reasonably safe to the agent and results in harm to others. A secondary differentiation between drug use that is reasonably risky to the agent and does not result in harm to others, and drug use that is reasonably risky to the agent and results in harm to others. A tertiary differentiation between drug use harmful only to the agent following competent informed choice and drug use harmful only to the agent not following competent informed choice. These reasonable differentiations based on the outcome of drug use, not on the idea of drug use, but on the actual outcome, are neutral with respect to the drug, the agent's intent, and the setting in which drug use occurs. Only in this way are autonomous individuals separable from the public interest and education and health measures separable for the need for police power. And I use that word only advisably because I studied that paragraph. I mean, that paragraph, that section of that thing, I I swear I put six months of thinking into. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you. And the last question that I think I'd like to ask is what advice you might have for any aspiring young chemists out there who want to be making their own medicine. The first thing I'd ask you to do is read Andrew Sewell's So You Want to Be a Psychedelic Researcher. Uh, and then apply that to the idea that you want to be a psychedelic chemist. Um, and then uh, really examine your motives. Like, what are you doing this for? Uh, who do you want to be? It's like, uh, are you willing to stand up and not grasp your friends up and stand up and say, I want to be counted for this and stand on the principles of cognitive liberty and freedom and sacramental freedom and uh, the idea of the right to privacy in relation to the palliatives that you might want to use? Um, are you willing to stand up? If you're not willing to stand up, then get the fuck out of the kitchen. Straight up. That's what you're hearing from me. Second thing I'd say is read Paul Scudder's Electron Flow and Electron, Electron Flow and Organic Chemistry because it's a fabulous book that boils down all the mechanisms to about 20 of them, 20 common pathways for all chemistry. If you're going to be doing synthesis, if you're doing extractions, you know, be aware, be safe, be aware of the, you know, what, uh, the, what are the flammability issues? What are your health issues? Like take care of yourself and those around you. Don't be dumb. Uh, never boil an ether to dryness. Things like that. Be smart. Understand your lab, you know, understand, take some classes, like work in a lab. Don't just, you know, run off at the hilt thinking that you can actually do this because you remember swords cut both ways and, you know, this could cut you really bad and be prepared. Um, I'm not advising that you do chemistry unlawfully because that would be possibly conspiratorial and unlawful. Isn't that amazing that I can't even advise you to do that? But, you know, do as you will. It shall be the whole of the law. 
That's perfect. And in fact, it, that's one last question I should ask uh, some of your cognitive liberty stature. What are your thoughts on the dark web and the availability of everything you can get there now? If you want to understand my thoughts on the dark web, you might want to read uh, Drugs, the Internet, and Change by Charlotte Walsh, uh, my former wife. Uh, and cognitive liberty ad- advocate, and that's found in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs. Uh, uh, the dark web is absolutely the death knell for the war on drugs. Uh, it, you know, it's getting to the point where it doesn't even have to be dark anymore. It's just like there's just so much sales of drugs going on. There's no way that the genie's so fucking far out of the bottle, as it says on the back of TCAL by Nick Saunders. He says the psychedelic genie is out of the bottle and can never be put back again. And I can see through the door into the lab onto the little dashboard over there a copy of TCAL where that is printed on the very back cover of it. Psychedelic genie cannot be put back in the bottle again. The war on drugs is over. They're just going to kind of fight it for a while until they run out of money. And they they see the futility in attempting to imprison everybody because they just can't do it. Psychedelic genies out of the bottle. Well, thank you so much, Casey Hardison, for taking the time to talk to us. That it's been a great rundown, and I appreciate your time here on this Fourth of July weekend at the Shulgin Farm. It is a fabulous place to be for the Fourth of July because this is where freedom uh, has really been rang for, really been sang and rang for many, many years. Uh, it also happens to be the wedding anniversary of Sasha and Anne, so it's obviously a beautiful day to be celebrating around here. Lots of love to you all. Keep it shiny side up. Thanks again for listening to Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Do us a favor. Go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating or review. Tell your friends. That's how you can really help us out. Thanks to Matt Payne who engineered the sound, Joey Whip for the intro music, California Smile for the outro music, and Brian Norman who produced the show.